0: Last time, we stopped here, describing the different vertebrae. The vertebral column, we said, is composed by many vertebrae, one on top of the other, but they are divided in regions, starting with the cervical region that has 7 vertebrae, thoracic region with 12 vertebrae, and the lumbar region with 5 vertebrae all individual bones, and in between, we find the intervertebral discs, which is fibrocartilage. And we were explaining the differences between these three types of vertebrae and how we can identify them if we get them like single bones. Um, we, We are able to identify them, which region they belong to by examining some of the features. And we explained last time, the differences regarding the body, which is bigger in the lumbar vertebrae and smaller in the cervical, the presence of the transverse foramen, which is only present in the cervical vertebrae. In this hole, this foramen, is for an artery, the vertebral or vertebral artery that brings blood into the brain. Um, when we get to that part, we'll see this system of circulation of the brain. Yes. I just noticed that uh, every time uh, it's a hole inside uh, like a bone, it's a foramen, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, that's the meaning of foramen. Okay. Um, it's a Latin word for orifice, hole, opening. And if we see a lateral view of this vertebrae, Then we can see other differences like the orientation of the spinous process. We say the spinous process is that bony projection that we feel in our backs when we touch in the midline and we feel the bone. That is the tip of the spinous process. For the lumbar vertebrae, this spinous process is thick, wide, and short. For the thoracic vertebrae, this spinous process is long and pointing downwards. And for the cervical, is short, bifid. Spinous process has two points. And it's also horizontal or pointing downwards a little bit. But that's not the most important feature of the cervical vertebrae. If you want to find out if it's a cervical vertebrae, look for the transverse foramen. If it's there, no doubt. There may be some confusion between the last cervical and the first thoracic since they are one next to another. They are very similar. But the difference is given by the transverse foramen. And if we see all of them, one on top of the other, the cervical vertebrae, they look like this. Notice the spinous processes of. The cervical vertebrae. All the spinous processes are bifid, except the C7, which is more prominent. And last time we explained that the C7 is usually palpable. We can touch. If you touch your neck, you go down, and you will feel like a bony prominence. And some people have it bigger than others. But that's the spinous process of the cervical vertebrae number seven. And by the way, it's a good import it's an important marking. We perform physical examinations and notice we want to know uh, the lesions of the cervical spine, and we take that as a good uh, bone marking for that. Now we've been mentioning cervical vertebrae C3 to C7 because C1 and C2 are special. And actually they have its own name. C1 is called Atlas and C2 is called axis. And the term Atlas comes from this character of the Greek mythology that was named Atlas. And this is a guy that is depicted in the pictures while holding the whole holding the world like this. Well actually the atlas, this C1 is holding the head. And that's the reason why I use that that name, C1 or atlas. And if you see the the surface of the atlas, you will find these two spaces, which are the point of contact for the occipital condyle of the occipital bone. That's where the occipital bone articulates with the C1. Number two is called axis because it has a particular characteristic that we will see in the next slides, in the next pictures. So, atlas, it has some features. It's the only vertebrae, the only vertebra that has no body. It has no body. It's like a ring, just like a ring. Neither a spinous process. No body, no spinous process, and if we go back, we can see this is where the body is supposed to be, but there's nothing, and there's no spinous process either. This is like a bonnet ring. And as I said, it contains lateral surface, I mean, superior surfaces for the occipital condyles, because that's where the skull rests on and articulates. This articulation, this joint between the occipital condyle and the uh, C1 or atlas, this joint has a movement, is for flexion and extension of the head. So, when we nod our heads in the yes movement, that's when we are making this joint work. And we say, yes, flexion-extension. The occipital condyle is moving on the atlas. And that's a more amplified view of the C1 vertebrae where we see the superior articular facet. That's how it's called the surface for articulation with the occipital condyle. And as you see, there is no body here, and there is no spinous process. It's just a small eminence, prominence <coughs> called posterior tubercle. Mostly, it's just a ring, but it's still, it has a transverse foraming as any other cervical vertebra. C two. Well, this is another view of the atlas from an inferior view. In an inferior view, we also have these lateral masses and articular facets, but this time for the next vertebrae, the one underneath. C2, or axis, it does have a body. Like any other vertebrae, it has a body, has a spinous process, and so on. But the most uh, important feature of the axis is a prominence, is a bony prominence called dense that projects upwards and anteriorly, and it works as a pivot for rotation of the atlas. This joint between the atlas and the axis is the one that allows the movement, lateral movement, rotation, lateral rotation of the head. Because, as we will see in the slides, well, this is a description of the parts of the C2. A superior view will let us see the facets for the atlas. And here is the dense. Like a pivot, it's like a bony prominence. It's called dance because dance means um, tooth, it actually looks like a tooth. And that's a photograph of it. And here you go look at this dance. Where is it? Here, this is the dance of the axis, and it's and we continue this. It will be like that. So it's actually like, if this hand with my finger is the dance, then the atlas like a ring comes in this way, and it moves in this way. So the dance works as a pivot, and the atlas moves and rotates over the pivot. And that's why it's called axis. So the movement of lateral rotation is movement of the atlas on the pivot like this, moving the whole head. So, and that dense is supported by a ligament, which is a band of connective tissue called transverse ligament. That is uh, in the atlas, but it's holding the dense in place and allows this rotation of the head. That's a reason why these uh, fractures or lesions of the neck are really dangerous because if you break one of these ribs, You can imagine you cannot make these movements. And if you make these movements, the pieces of bone can injure the spinal cord. And that's why it has to be immobilized in a very physiological position using those collars here and putting the neck in only one position. You cannot do the yes or no movement. You have to move the whole thing with your trunk. That's the idea of those collars. Immobilize completely these two joints and, of course, the rest of the cervical vertebrae. Questions about the cervical vertebrae, the neck? (coughs) Thoracic vertebrae. There are 12 thoracic. They are named from T1 to T12. The body of this vertebrae Is described as like heart-shaped. It's like a triangle. And it has facets for articulation with the ribs. That's the way we can differentiate the thoracic vertebrae. It has facets for the ribs, which are located in the body. If you see the body of the vertebrae and find these facets for the ribs, that means as a thoracic vertebrae. The vertebral foramen, the vertebral foramen, is circular, and as we said, the spinous process is long, sharp, and is pointing downwards. The ribs articulate with the thoracic vertebrae, and they actually move, these joints are important for breathing movements. For respiration, when we breathe, we expand our thorax and the ribs actually move, move over the vertebrae and allow more space in the thoracic cavity for more air. A view of a couple of thoracic vertebrae are seen here. We see the main markings, which are the spinous process, body of the vertebrae. Here we see an intervertebral disc in between, and in the body, as I said, there are these facets: inferior costal facet for the head of a rib, and there's another facet here also in the body of the vertebrae on top, for the rib, for specific areas of the ribs, like the head and tubercle of the rib. Lumbar vertebrae. The lumbar are named from L1 to L5, (coughs) L1 to L5, and these are thick, strong bones, the bodies are very large and the point is this lumbar region is the one that supports most of the weight of the body. This is the point of equilibrium of our body. That's why last lecture we were explaining that if you have a, uh, an accident and you jump from the roof and land on your feet, well all the forces will converge in the lumbar vertebrae. That's the point of equilibrium and it may break. and. and Rush in the vertebrae. Spinous processes are short, wide, flat, and it has articular facets for each of the lumbar vertebrae. But they have a special feature that prevents rotation of the lumbar. So this lumbar area allows little rotation, not much. vertebrae column is able to move, I mean these joints they allow movement in certain ranges not too much and we see the picture of two lumbar vertebrae see the spinous process is thick, short, wide and uh, the bodies are very large. And what comes after are two bones, sacrum and coccyx. The sacrum is actually a fusion, a fusion of five vertebrae, which are named as S1 to S5. During the development, these vertebrae, they get fused. They get fused into this triangular bone shape uh, that is part of the posterior wall of the pelvis. The sacrum is belongs to the pelvic region and more inferior we have the coccyx, the next bone. Again this this is also the fusion of three to five vertebrae. Coccyx is considered a remain of the tail. Some other species they have a long tail And that's what the coccyx is. It will be the equivalent to the coccyx in humans. Quick view how they look. Sacrum is this triangular bone. Where we can still identify some ridges. Which is a place of fusion. This is where these bones got fused. And you can easily understand that this is the place of the intervertebral disc in other regions like the thoracic or lumbar. But as I said, during the development they get fused, all these vertebrae get fused, but you still can see the ridges in this bone. And all the transverse processes, they got fused also. They got fused and they receive this name, ala, which means wing. And it has these little holes, not little, but holes for exit of nerves from the spinal cord. And it will be equivalent to the intervertebral foramen that allow the spinal nerves to come from the spinal cord. And the coccyx is seen as a fusion of three to five vertebrae underneath. That's a posterior view of the sacrum and coccyx, where we can see a crest called median sacral crest, which is a fusion of all the spinous processes of these vertebrae. And we can see the sacral foramina for spinal nerves coming out. So I said, this sacrum articulates with the pelvic bone. The pelvic bone comes here, on both sides. Here and here. So the sacrum belongs to the pelvis. That's what we say is the posterior wall of the pelvis. Okay, let's enter into the thoracic cage. This is the last part of the axial skeleton. The thoracic cage is composed by vertebrae of the thoracic region the 12 vertebrae the sternum or breastbone and the ribs we have seen the function of thoracic cage initially when we talk about the cavities thoracic cavity all the ribs and thoracic cage protects organs in the thoracic cavity, like the heart and lungs, but besides, it is a place of connection for the upper limbs, shoulder, what we call the shoulder girdle, that's where the upper limbs connect to the trunk. And, of course, attachment for many muscles that move the head, the neck, the back, and the shoulders. Here in the picture, we see the thoracic cage with all the components from an anterior view. What we see is anteriorly this bone called sternum. The sternum has three parts. The upper part, the most superior, is called manubrium. And it's just this superior part. The second part is the middle part called the body of the sternum. And it involves all this up to here. All that is the body. Between the manubrium and the body, there's this marking called sternal angle. And this, this is very prominent in some people. Uh, if you pass your finger on the midline from the very top of the sternum, it keep going down you will notice a point at which you feel a curvature. And all of a sudden, the direction of the bone changes. That is the sternal angle. That is the sternal angle. And that sternal angle is a place where the second rib connects to the sternum. That's actually used in physical examination. When we examine the chest, we feel this sternal angle. They move move laterally, and you can feel, actually, the Second rib. The one you touch there, that is the second rib. The articulation of the second rib. Because sometimes we need to count the ribs. That's how we find the second. And from there we keep keep counting third, fourth, and and so on. And the third part of this sternum is called siphon process. Which is this little tip here. Again, this can be also felt, if you keep going this sternum, you find a pointy part here, which is flexible. It is actually very cartilaginous. But then with the age, it gets calcified. And if you see this uh, syphoid process, in young people, you can see it sometimes with the skin and move it, it's flexible. But if you see this in a 70 or 80-year-old person, it will be very hard and not mobile, it's immovable. And it's very hard, it's calcified. Here's a siphon process seen as a cartilaginous in in blue color. What well, does the sternum? The sternum articulates to the ribs, but not directly. There is a cartilage that connects the rib with the sternum, and those cartilages are shown in blue. We Use this example of the cartilage uh, of the ribs, which is called costal cartilage. We use this example when we did tissues, and we say, oh, here yeah, cartilage, hyaline cartilage. Example, the costal cartilages. The connection of the ribs to the sternum by means of these cartilages classify the ribs in different types. The first seven ribs are called true ribs, and they are called true because each of these ribs they have their own cartilage to connect to the sternum. What does the true ribs. Do? True ribs are called true ribs because they have their own cartilage connecting to the sternum. Each of these ribs, they have their own cartilage. The ribs 8, 9, and 10 are called false ribs. Here we have 8, 9, and Ten. They are called false ribs because they, their cartilage connects to the cartilage number seven. They don't have their own cartilage. They, all of them get together and join the cartilage seven. And let me show you that here. This is the rib seven, and we can I can draw the cartilage. It has its own cartilage and goes to the sternum. That's from the cartilage seven. But then 8, 9, and 10, look what happens. This is the cartilage of 8, cartilage of 9, and the one from 10. They all get together. They all get together and connect to the cartilage number 7 here. That's the reason why they are called false ribs. They don't have their own cartilage. They get together and join to the cartilage number 7. And the last two, 10, and, I mean 11 and 12, they are called floating because they don't have any connection at all. They are floating. They don't have cartilage. They don't connect to the sternum. Now the space in between the ribs that we can easily palpate during the examination is called intercostal space intercostal space. <coughs> okay so let's move on and this is just a description of all what we described in the picture. Um, the manubrion contains this clavicular notches. because that's a place where the clavicle connects to the sternum. As we will see here, up here, clavicular notch. This part of the manubrium will connect to the clavicle that comes in this way. And other markings of the sternum that we mentioned in the picture, like the sternal angle. Jugular notch, jugular notch is just the superior border of the manubrium, like we see here. It is labeled the jugular notch. And it's this upper part, the most superior part. The part that we touch here with our fingers on the very top of the sternum, it has like a U shape. That is called jugular notch. We are here. And cifisternal joint is the name that we give the connection between the body and the cyphoid process of the sternum. <coughs> this is a sagittal section, a mid-sagittal section of the body that shows us some in interesting relationships because here we have the sternum and up here we see the manubrium. The jugular notch is up here. For this jugular notch, the top part of the sternum, if we trace a horizontal line, we are going to meet the vertebrae, thoracic vertebrae number two at this level. Then the sternal angle the connection between the body of the sternum and the manubrium, if we trace a line there, we are in the vertebrae T4. And the siphon process, which is here, will be at the level of the uh, thoracic vertebrae number nine. These are important relationships that we use, again, during the physical examination to determine different levels in the body. The ribs. As we saw in the picture, there are 12 pairs. They all attach to the bodies and transverse process of the thoracic vertebrae. True vertebral, I mean two ribs, from 1 to 7. False ribs, 8, 9, and 10. And floating ribs, 11 and 12. These costal cartilages, these costal cartilages, allow flexibility to the thoracic cage. And thanks to them is that we can breathe and expand our lungs. If this costal cartilage were calcified, if there were just ribs connecting to the sternum, we we wouldn't have much elasticity or flexibility to breathe. That's one of the reasons why when we age and get older, these cartilage actually get calcified. Not completely, but At some point, it may limit the expansion of the thorax. And that limits, of course, the respiratory functions. And some people, when they get older, the amount of air that they can breathe decreases because the thorax is not so flexible anymore. And thanks to them is that we can perform also the maneuvers of CPR, the chest massage, chest compressions. Actually, compress really hard, and uh, we can squeeze the heart. Following this, we actually have to compress like one or two inches deep in order to reach the heart. And these are views of the ribs connecting to the vertebrae first. You see the head of the rib here is called the part that connects to the vertebrae. And part of this head is articulating to this vertebra the other part of the head to the vertebrae underneath. So the head of the rib gets in between two thoracic vertebrae, actually. And we see this facet from the thoracic vertebrae, free, because that rib has been removed at that point. And the tubercle of the rib connects to the transverse facet located in the transverse process of the thoracic vertebrae. We see that tubercle (coughs) connecting to the transverse process right here. And these ribs are flat bones, long but flat. As you see here, this has a cross section and it has this appearance. There is a depression here (coughs) seen from this view called the costal groove. Because here in the costal groove, we will find blood vessels and nerves, called intercostal vessels, intercostal nerves. And they are bringing circulation along the rib to the anterior part of the chest. And anteriorly, we see this rib connecting to the costal cartilage and to the sternum. It's uh, so a different view. This is a superior view of a rib connecting to the thoracic vertebrae. You see how the head is articulated with the body of the thoracic vertebrae. And the tubercle here of the rib connecting to the transverse process of the thoracic vertebrae. That's a photograph of the ribs and how they look, we'll try to see. I'll try to see if we can get some ribs, loose ribs, so you can see all these parts. And the connected ribs, you can see them in these skeletons that we have here. We have four in the room now. Questions about the axial skeleton? Yeah, we can move to, uh, to the appendicular skeleton. See, upper limb, lower limb, and the shoulder girdle and the pelvic girdle, the connections with the trunk. Appendicular skeleton, there are two girdles or connections. The pectoral girdle, or shoulder, where the upper limbs attach to the trunk. And the pelvic girdle, where the lower limbs attach to the body trunk. The shoulder girdle is called in this way because it determines this diameter of connection. And the bones that participate in this connection are the clavicles and the scapula. The clavicle or collarbone and the scapula, which is posterior. These bones provide attachments to muscles. So there are muscles that connect clavicle, scapula, to the upper limb, to the bone of the humerus in the arm, for instance. And thanks to this connection is that we have a good range of movement of the upper limb in many different directions. The connection of the humerus with the trunk is by means of these bones, the scapula and the clavicle, and it is considered a socket, it's a joint called a socket, because it's a ball and socket, and the ball allows different movements and different directions and different ranges of movement. And that's a view of this pectoral girdle or shoulder girdle. The scapula and the clavicle. Here we have the clavicle and the scapula is posterior. But this anterior view let us see, this is the humerus, the bone of the arm. This ball is called the head of the humerus and that connects to the scapula. The scapula has a socket for that and the scapula connects to the clavicle here. This is called acromioclavicular joint, or most known as the AC joint. You can see all this in the articulated skeletons that we have here, you can even move the upper limbs and see all this, how they articulate to each other. So the collarbones or clavicles They are bones that have the shape of an S. And that shape, that shape determines two ends. The sternal end, that of course articulates with the sternum. And the acromial end, which articulates to the scapula. The acromial end is flat and wide. That's how you you recognize it. And the sternal end is thicker and more round, it's not flat. Picture is showing a right clavicle from the superior view. But if we see an inferior view, we will notice that. There is like a groove here and it looks more bumpy or irregular because of two things. First, those irregularities or bumps, they are for attachment of muscles and ligaments. You don't have these markings in your handouts, but you will see this in the clavicle like tubercles, conoid tubercle for instance. This is for attachment of ligaments. And also like irregularities that you will see in the inferior view of the clavicle. And this kind of groove that you see here is important because that's where a very important blood vessel runs. Subclavian artery, subclavian veins, which are very large blood vessels. The scapula or shoulder blade. The scapula has three borders, three angles, it's like a triangle, with many bone markings. The main features or markings are the spine, which is posterior. Acromion, which is a lateral projection, and that's where the AC joint is located, AC joint of acromioclavicular joint. And, by the way, this joint can be easily touched up here on the shoulder. If you grab your shoulder on top and look for the bony part, you will feel a flat surface. With that flat surface is the acromion from the scapula. And, if you move anterior, you will find a bump. That's a clavicle. If you follow that, you will end up in the clavicle. So, that is the AC joint. This joint is sometimes injured in sports like football when you go in this way. Or you fall to your upper limb, and this joint is dislocated. Coracoid process and suprascapular notch. So let's see these markings in the pictures. Three borders and three angles. Superior angle, inferior angle, and lateral angle, which is where these (coughs) markings are. Superior border, lateral border, and medial border. Three borders, three angles, a triangle. This is an anterior view. In the anterior view, the most important marking is called the coracoid process. The coracoid process, which is this round projection that we see here. The coracoid process. And we can see the suprascapular notch here, which is a, a space, a notch for blood vessels, blood vessels and nerves that go through this space. A posterior view. Posterior view will allow us to see the spine, which is one of the markings that we describe in the slide. The spine is a bony ridge, which is posterior. It can easily be touched also in the back when you go in the shoulder, go to the back, you feel that ridge of the spine. If you follow that spine, you will reach the acromion, which is this lateral projection give us a flat surface of the shoulder. Coracoid process can be seen from the posterior view, but remember it's an anterior projection, anterior bony projection. You can also see the suprascapular notch from posterior view. And there are two spaces here. The space on top of the spine, which is called the supraspinous fossa, and the space under the spine, all this space, which is called the infraspinous fossa. These spaces is where muscles are located. And two important muscles supraspinatus and infraspinatus. We will study those muscles later on. And those muscles are part of a group of muscles that is known as the rotator cuff muscles, which are also injured, very injured, commonly injured in the sport. Muscles that move the arm, the humerus, like this make rotation of the head when we do this, we are working these muscles. And those muscles are located in this space, supraspinous fossa, infraspinous fossa, And the lateral view of the scapula will let us see the articular surface for the head of the humerus. That is called the glenoid cavity. The glenoid cavity. It's a semicircular, not completely, but partially. And you can see how the head of the humerus, you can set an articular skeleton, how it fits there, and how it can rotate and move like a ball and socket joint. So, you see how this uh, scapula allows a lot of function, movement in different directions and this is the attachment for different muscles that allow movement of the upper limb. Now let's go to the upper limb, the bones of the upper limb. Any questions, any comment to this point? Let's have a break now, ten minutes.